Chapters twenty through twenty four of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Chapter twenty Italian Without a Master, nineteen o three. The Home Product. Necessarily, we are all fond of murderers, scandals, swindles, robberies, explosions, collisions, and all such things when we know the people, and when they are neighbors and friends, but when they are strangers we do not get any great pleasure out of them, as a rule. Now the trouble with an American paper is that it has no discrimination. It rakes the whole earth for blood and garbage, and the result is that you are daily overfed and suffer a surfeit. By habit you stow this muck every day, but you come by and by to take no vital interest in it, Indeed, you almost get tired of it. As a rule, forty-nine fiftieths of it concerns strangers only, people away off yonder, a thousand miles, two thousand miles, ten thousand miles from where you are. Why, when you come to think of it, who cares what becomes of those people? I would not give the assassination of one personal friend for a whole massacre of those others, and, to my mind, one relative or neighbor mixed up in a scandal is more interesting than a whole Sodom and Gomorrah of outlanders gone rotten. Give me the home product every time. THE CHARM OF UNCERTAINTY There is a great, a peculiar charm, about reading news scraps in a language which you are not acquainted with, the charm that always goes with the mysterious and the uncertain. You can never be absolutely sure of the meaning of anything you read in such circumstances. You are chasing an alert and gamey riddle all the time, and the baffling turns and dodges of the prey make the life of the hunt. A dictionary would soil it. Sometimes a single word of doubtful purport will cast a veil of dreamy and golden uncertainty over a whole paragraph of cold and practical certainties and leave, steeped in a haunting and adorable mystery, an incident which had been vulgar and commonplace, but for the benefaction. Would you be wise to draw a dictionary on that gracious word? Would you be properly grateful? From Chapter 21, Eve's Diary, 1905 Her Chief Desire it is my prayer, it is my longing, that we may pass from this life together, a longing which shall never perish from the earth, but shall have place in the heart of every wife that loves, until the end of time, and it shall be called by my name. But if one of us must go first, it is my prayer that it shall be I, for he is strong, I am weak, I am not so necessary to him as he is to me. Life without him would not be life. How could I endure it? This prayer is also immortal, and will not cease from being offered while my race continues. I am the first wife, and in the last wife I shall be repeated. At Eve's Grave Adam Wheresoever she was, there was Eden. William Dean Howells, 1905 for forty years his English has been to me a continual delight and astonishment. In the sustained exhibition of certain great qualities, 
clearness, compression, verbal exactness, and enforced and seemingly unconscious felicity of phrasing, he is, in my belief, without his peer in the English writing world. Sustained. I entrench myself behind that protecting word. There are others who exhibit those great qualities as greatly as he does, but only by intervailed distributions of rich moonlight, with stretches of veiled and dimmer landscape between, whereas Howell's moon sails cloudless skies all night and all the nights. From Chapter 22, Miscellaneous, 1905 to 1909 Making the Oyster You can't make an oyster out of nothing, nor you can't do it in a day. You've got to start with a vast variety of invertebrates, the belemnites, trilobites, jubicites, amalekites, and that sort of fry, and put them in to soak in a primary sea, and observe and wait what will happen. Some of them will turn out a disappointment, the belemnites and the amalekites, and such will be failures, and they will die out and become extinct in the course of the nineteen million years covered by the experiment. But all is not lost, for the jubicites will develop gradually into encrinites and stalactites and blatherskites, and one thing and another, as the mighty ages creep on and the periods pile their lofty crags in the primordial seas, and at last the first grand stages in the preparation of the world for man stands completed. The oyster is done. Now an oyster has hardly any more reasoning power than a man has. So it is probable that this one jumped to the conclusion that the nineteen million years was a preparation for him. That would be just like an oyster. And anyway, this one could not know at that early date that he was only an incident in the scheme and that there was some more to the scheme yet. Mark Twain, A Biography The Fatality of Sequence When the first living atom found itself afloat on the great Laurentian Sea, the first act of that first atom led to the second act of that first atom, and so on down through the succeeding ages of all life, until, if the steps could be traced, it would be shown that the first act of that first atom has led inevitably to the act of my standing in my dressing-gown, at this instant, talking to you. Mark Twain, A Biography Life's Turning Point Necessarily, the scene of the great turning point of my life, and of yours, was the Garden of Eden. It was there that the first link was forged of the chain that was ultimately to lead to the emptying of me into the literary guild. Adam's temperament was the first command the deity ever issued to a human being on this planet, and it was the only command Adam would never be able to disobey. It said, Be weak, be water, be characterless, be cheaply persuadable. The later command, to let the fruit alone, was certain to be disobeyed, not by Adam himself, but by his temperament, which he did not create, and had no authority over. For the temperament is the man. The thing tricked out with clothes and named man is merely its shadow, nothing more. The law of the tiger's temperament is, thou shalt kill. 
the law of the sheep's temperament is, thou shalt not kill. To issue later commands, requiring the tiger to let the fat stranger alone, and requiring the sheep to imbue its hands in the blood of the lion, is not worth while, for those commands can't be obeyed. They would invite to violations of the law of temperament, which is supreme, and takes precedence of all other authorities. I cannot help feeling disappointed in Adam and Eve, that is, in their temperaments, not in them, poor helpless young creatures, afflicted with temperaments made out of butter, which butter was commanded to get into contact with fire and be melted. What I cannot help wishing is that Adam and Eve had been postponed, and Martin Luther and Joan of Arc put in their place. That splendid pair, equipped with temperaments not made of butter, but of asbestos, by neither sugary persuasions nor by hellfire could Satan have beguiled them to eat the apple. Close of Seventieth Birthday Speech Three score years and ten. It is the scriptural statute of limitations. After that you owe no active duties, for you the strenuous life is over. You are a time-expired man, to use Kipling's military phrase. You have served your term, well or less well, and you are mustered out. You are become an honorary member of the Republic. You are emancipated. Compulsions are not for you, nor any bugle call but lights out. You pay the time-worn duty bills if you choose, or decline if you prefer, and without prejudice, for they are not legally collectible. The previous engagement plea, which in forty years has cost you so many twinges, you can lay aside forever. On this side of the grave you will never need it again. If you shrink at thought of night and winter, and the late homecomings from the banquet and the lights and laughter through the deserted street, a desolation which would not remind you now, as for a generation it did, that your friends are sleeping, and you must creep in a tiptoe, and not disturb them, but would only remind you that you need not tiptoe, you can never disturb them more. If you shrink at the thought of these things, you need only reply, Your invitation honours me, and pleases me, because you still keep me in your remembrance, but I am seventy, seventy, and would nestle in the chimney-corner, and smoke my pipe and read my book, and take my rest, wishing you well in all affection, and that when you in your turn shall arrive at Pier 70, you may step aboard your waiting ship with a reconciled spirit, and lay your course toward the sinking sun with a contented heart. THE FUTURE LIFE Mark Twain often allowed his fancy to play with the idea of the orthodox heaven its curiosities of architecture, and its employments of continuous prayer, psalm-singing, and harpistry. What a childish notion it was, he said, and how curious that only a little while ago human beings were so willing to accept such fragile evidences about a place of so much importance. If we should find somewhere today an ancient book containing an account of a beautiful and blooming tropical paradise, secreted in the centre of eternal icebergs, an account written by men who did not even claim to have seen it themselves, 
no geographical society on earth would take any stock in that book yet that account would be quite as authentic as any we have of heaven if god has such a place prepared for us and really wanted us to know it he could have found some better way than a book so liable to alterations and misinterpretations god has no trouble to prove to man the laws of the constellations and the construction of the world and such things as that none of which agree with his so-called book as to a hereafter we have not the slightest evidence that there is any no evidence that appeals to logic and reason i have never seen what to me seemed an atom of proof that there is a future life then after a long pause he added and yet i am strongly inclined to expect one mark twain a biography religion i would not interfere with anyone's religion either to strengthen it or to weaken it i am not able to believe one's religion can affect his hereafter one way or the other no matter what that religion may be but it may easily be a great comfort to him in this life hence it is a valuable possession to him from chapter twenty three the death of jean nineteen o nine it is the time appointed the funeral has begun four hundred miles away but i can see it all just as if i were there the scene is the library in the langdon homestead jean's coffin stands where her mother and i stood forty years ago and were married and where susie's coffin stood thirteen years ago where her mother's stood five years and a half ago and where mine will stand after a little time from chapter twenty four one of his latest memoranda nineteen o nine the impartial friend death the only immortal who treats us all alike whose pity and whose peace and whose refuge are for all the soiled and the pure the rich and the poor the loved and the unloved End of chapters 20 to 24 End of Moments with Mark Twain by Mark Twain Selected by Albert Bigelow Payne Recording by Lee Smalley